Hello and welcome to the Hacked Off Podcast. In today's episode, I've got Mark and Chris with me. Mark, why don't you start? Who on earth are you? So I'm Mark Wantling. I'm Chief Information Officer at the University of Salford. I've been there as CIO for 18 months. I've been at the university for, for just over three years in total. And then before that, um, worked for a software and services business, again, in, in the education sector. So I spent pretty much all of my IT career working, working in the education sector and now currently with, with the university. Chris? I'm Chris Vaughan. I'm the AVP of Technical Account Management at Tanium. Tanium is an endpoint management and security company as well as risk. Uh, we provide a platform that allows you to get instant visibility across your entire IT environment at speed and scale. So Mark, working in the education sector, how is that different to normal computers? Because from my point of view as a pen tester, I'm sitting here thinking, everybody just wins, runs Windows, maybe the occasional Mac. Uh, how is the education sector unique from a cybersecurity point of view? First of all, I wish it was as straightforward as that. Um, <laughs> quite a, a complex um, set of dynamics and, and variables at, at, at the university and in particular the University of Salford. I'll give you a bit of background about the university first and then tell you why I think there's a particular challenge that, that I've had at the university. So we, we've got around about 20,000 students, 2,500 staff um, and over 100,000 alumni. So that gives us quite a large population. Um, if you think about number of endpoints, we're probably in the region of 5,500 uh, and a real mix of endpoints. So Windows, Macs, some Linux uh, and the same for our server estate. So we're, we're kind of hybrid. We've got two on-prem data centers but like most people, we're on that cloud migration journey at the moment, and we're we're a Windows house, so we've we've got Azure as our kind of cloud platform. And I talked then about you know twenty thousand students, two and a half thousand staff, hundred thousand alumni, and you think that that number changes on a regular basis. So unlike most organisations where you may get you know tens or hundreds of joiners, movers, leavers in in any one period, we actually have five thousand students start every September. And then we have 5,000 leave every September. And then the flow during the year as well, there's ebbs and flows depending on recruitment cycles and so on. And dealing with that whole process is, is massively challenging. And then within the university, there are actually four schools. So the university is a, a almost like a group and then has individual schools beneath them. And each school has their area of specialism. And I guess my job is in twofold. So the first bit is provide a safe, secure, stable environment for us to deliver our, our core business, which is deliver teaching and learning to students. But then the other half of my job is to drive transformation, digital transformation to help us win and outperform in the sector and, and continue to improve. And that also comes with the need to provide all of those schools with the ability to run effectively mini R&D departments. You know, we do carry out quite a lot of research and that generates income, but also informs our teaching and learning as well. So to try and strike that balance between providing a safe, secure, stable environment for four different schools with four different demands, and then uh, have a network which is responsive and adaptive enough to be able to deal with four individual R&D departments and engage with external parties, etc. It's quite a quite a big challenge. So I think that the biggest difference I'm seeing there is this idea of uh, mass starters and leavers, right? So there's that, that point in the year where suddenly you have a, a huge, uh, I guess, turnover of, of people. Does that kind of activity, so that um, significant movement of, of uh, students and those kinds of things, does that make tracking what your systems should be up to quite difficult? I know for a lot of organizations, when it comes to things like starters and leavers policy, it's quite simple. They don't have that much staff turnover, so it's something they don't worry an awful lot about. But I imagine one of the concerns for you as an organization is uh, leaving accounts open longer than necessary. Uh, maybe the opposite, not not accidentally locking somebody's account if they're still trying to get work done, those kinds of things. Um, how do you track all of that information? It's a good point, Holly. It's a massive challenge for us. So we've got difficulties in tracking individual user accounts and the, the ebbs and flows of those joiners, movers and, and leavers. And actually, you know, as an organisation that's focused on education and knowledge, we're built around being open and, and sharing that information. Even if you consider the physical campus, it's it's an open campus. We encourage people to come and visit and walk around the campus. And so that presents challenges as well. 
And then asset tracking from an endpoint perspective is also a huge challenge again with that massive influx and, and ebbs and flowers of, of joiners, movers and, and leavers creates even more challenges. So we've been on a bit of a journey over the last 18 months actually. And these are some of the challenges that, that I faced when I joined as, as CIO, um, particularly around accounts. So if we consider 100,000 alumni accounts, identifying those that have, have no longer been used for a, a period of time and managing those on a regular basis is, is quite a challenge. We get staff and students that move between various courses, departments, and making sure we've got the right role-based access control, again, is a, is a huge challenge. More importantly, actually, what we've seen over the last um, 18 months or so is, is our ability to track assets has been, been a huge challenge for us, hence the, the work that we've been doing with Tanium recently to provide us that insight uh, to track those assets, to have visibility of the assets we've got. I mentioned back at the, the start that we've got four schools within the university. And each of those schools operates almost pseudo-independently of the university. They have students that they work with day to day that move around, seizing out that information of those joiners and movers from within the individual schools is quite a challenge. But also the assets within those schools can be purchased independently. They can set up those, those assets themselves. There can be servers running on our infrastructure that we know nothing about. So having a tool that gives us that complete visibility into user movement and asset movement is, is quite key. And that's the journey that we've been on over the last 18 months, trying to just improve some of those basic fundamentals. And actually, it's those basic fundamentals which usually end up resulting in organisations getting caught out. And, and the university network is, is a good example, I suppose, of a, a network which has evolved quite organically over the last, say, 20, 25 years. Uh, and it's been added to and bolted on. And there's never really been one design that the, the network has been built around. It's just kind of grown organically over that period of time. And now trying to wrestle back some of that control and that visibility is quite a challenge. And, and Mark, just a question for me. Um, I imagine you got a lot of researchers on campus and they'll get research grants. And along with those research grants, they probably need to go buy you know, IT equipment, servers, services, do they come to you and say, right, you know, I need this infrastructure to support what I'm doing, what I'm doing, or do they go to public market, buy stuff and then say, hey, I've bought this stuff, you know, can you manage it now? Or you know, how does that work? It's a real mixed bag still, Chris. And I think one of the things I've been focusing on is driving that engagement across the organization, the better relationships we have, with our researchers then the earlier heads up we get in terms of investments and decision making and, and services that they require and so we can respond better to that it's probably fair to say that traditionally the, the IT organization at the university hasn't quite been as, as responsive to our customer needs and so there's, there's still some legacy there where we may have departments go out and buy their own equipment or purchase their own services so we still have to deal with that and respond to that and it's I suppose a bit of an education piece helping helping our customers understand the benefits of coming and engaging with us first and, and early to get the right support rather than post-purchase. And then having a platform where we can actually have full visibility of things that are plugged into our network is the next bit, because it's very difficult for us to have full visibility all of the time of all of the assets connected to it uh, without a tool that can help us with that discovery piece and help manage and maintain that state. It's interesting to hear you say uh, the basics and the fundamentals when talking about these things, because of course, like in isolation, these things sound simple, don't they? Tracking what you've got, keeping software up to date, all of those kinds of things. But when you have a network at the scale that yours is, just the, the sheer number of users and, and devices, is it really fair to still refer to those things as the basics? Does the, the scale alone not make them complex? Yeah, absolutely right. I, I think it does. The, like you said, in isolation, each one of those tasks is fairly simple and, and a fairly set of simple activities to complete. You plug all of those together and then look at the correlation and impact of one change in one area and the resulting impact across the rest of the network or organization. It becomes a huge task. And again, fair to say that the university probably over the last 10 or 15 years hasn't invested as much time and effort in, in delivering those basics and then understanding how they're increasing in complexity as the university's reliance on technology has increased over the last 10 or 15 years or more. 
Um, how have you actually approached driving these changes then? So you mentioned earlier digital transformation. Is this just something that, you know, um, your customers effectively come to your team and say, we, we need new servers, we need new equipment? Or is it something that you, you've had to sit down and, and plan or architect out how to go back and handle this legacy equipment, handle these uh, challenges that you've faced? So I, I've had to set up an architecture function, an information security function, you know, we've had to drive lots of organizational changes within the IT department, which have been building the foundations of dealing with some of these things. So, it, you know, it's not possible to just re-architect and re-engineer the network overnight, particularly as it's been built over years and years. So I've spent the last three years at the university building those foundations, the last 18 months as CIO, really driving that roadmap of change. And so it's a very well-planned, thought-out set of activities. If I think specifically about information security. I joined the university three years ago, just over three years ago. Uh, the information security team was zero. There was, there was no one dedicated to InfoSec within the university. Fast forward to today, we've got five people that are dedicated to InfoSec. And then if I rewind to 18 months ago, just pre-pandemic, InfoSec as a, as, so the risk of cybersecurity attack um, was very low on the university risk register. But actually at the time, the, the whole threat landscape was changing significantly, partly be, well, mainly the drive was because of COVID-19 and the impact of that. And there was a, a realization from me at the time that as well as being a significant challenge that was about to hit us, there was a huge opportunity there. And that opportunity was one in getting some investments of re-architects and re-engineer some of these problems that we'd had. So we suddenly had two and a half thousand staff wanting to work from home, 20,000 students that we needed to teach remotely. And we're a campus university, we're just not set up for online teaching and learning. So we re-architected systems very quickly on the fly, then re-engineered them. And we were very conscious that would lead to essentially further introduction of vulnerabilities, even though we already knew that our network was perhaps quite organic in its, in its makeup. So I took that opportunity to increase um, the risk of cybersecurity attack on the university risk register a bit of insight into how risk is managed at the university. Um, the top 10 risks uh, at, at university level, all the risks are aggregated up and scored, and the top 10 get talked about are, are equivalent at board level. Uh, if they don't make that top 10, then they don't get discussed at board level and are managed further on down within the organisation. Cyber attack as a risk was, was way down in 12th, 13th position, even though everything that was going on across the Across the sector, we were seeing universities being hit by ransomware attacks. We were seeing uh, university networks being probed by nation state attackers because of COVID-19 research. And so I took that opportunity to really ele elevate that risk up the risk register. And that drove a real focus on dealing with some of the legacy issues that we'd had within the university network for a long time. It came with massive visibility, but also huge expectations from the board that then I go about fixing some of these things and driving that transformation. And so that balance of, of transformation is dealing with some of those sins of the past that perhaps haven't been fixed or, or dealt with before and also having one eye on the future where we're looking to drive movements to the cloud for example we've just completed an implementation of Dynamics 365 the CRM so we're constantly trying to strike that balance between dealing with technical debt and delivering nice shiny new transformational things within the university. Chris have you heard similar things from your other customers? So one of the things that Mark implied there was that COVID-19 really made a change to their threat landscape. Is that something that you're seeing across across the industry from your point of view? Yeah, definitely. And there's, there's you know, there's been tons of great memes in the, the past year, but one that really kind of jumps out is that COVID-19 pushed my digital transformation through. And, um, you know, and it's happened to a lot of organizations We've got some customers that literally their entire operation shifted from on-premise to off-premise in a couple of weeks. And the the way they went about doing their traditional patching, monitoring, vulnerability assessment, um, you know, completely changed overnight. And, you know, the way they re-architected the network was really driven by this. I mean, a lot of organizations, they, they, they depend on their assets being on the network to be able to patch them, be able to scan them for vulnerabilities. And when they're off network, they just don't have that visibility anymore. You know, it's, it's different for our customers because we've got a different architecture that can help support them off premise. But, you know, across the board, we're, we're hearing 
that they couldn't scan them for vulnerabilities, make sure they're secure. And, you know, it's not only that they've got this kind of upheaval in, you know, their own personal life of what's going on, but, you know, just trying to do their own day-to-day job has been quite difficult. And, um, you know, just trying to access services is even harder because you'll, you find things like the VPNs being all overloaded with, with patch traffic and they can't go in um, and log into, you know, maybe their procurement system, for example, to be able to, you know, order new licenses or um, transact different things. So stressings in, in a whole different way, but yeah, quite similar to, to what Mark said. It's interesting to hear that Chris talk about um, a lot of organizations visibility, because that was something that you mentioned, Mark, wasn't it? Originally prior to the digital transformation, maybe lacking visibility into your own systems. Um, how do you increase that? generally speaking so not necessarily just concentrating on what assets have we got and, and what users have we got but how do you handle things like well what don't we know that we've got what is out there on the network that we have no uh, knowledge to to go and look for so i guess that's one of the main reasons we we really engage titanium as a as a partner in the first place so at the university we've got lots of great tooling on our network to to look at what we do and how we do it but we really lacked that join up and because we've got quite a, an organic network of different operating systems in different places, different network segments, we needed one tool to give us that visibility. And so the, the huge benefit that we've had from the Titanium implementation is the discovery module. And so being able to discover assets um, in the local area, local uh, subnet to, to a device that has the agent on, we now get a report that says these are the number of assets that are manageable but not being managed. And so actually going into the Tanium implementation, our CMDB said we had around about 4,000 endpoints. By the time we completed the deployment and two weeks later, we discovered five and a half thousand. So there's 1,500 assets there we didn't know about. And today, because of um, remote working, we're still getting the agent discovering assets that can be managed but aren't being managed. And then that's leading us to identify further vulnerabilities, patch compliance issues, and, and a whole other host of, of issues that we're now focusing the InfoSec team on going remediating. So that tooling just gives us that complete visibility into assets that are connecting to the network that aren't currently being managed, but that could be. So you talk about vulnerability management there. How do you know that that is working? This is one of the things that I've seen with customers previously where they get to a stage of, you know, maybe they've got just a vulnerability scanner or something like that. They're scanning things, they're finding vulnerabilities, they're they're patching systems, and then they think, oh, great, everything's working now. Look, this is how many high risks we had before. This is how many high risks we've got now. And as long as it's a lower number, they've made progress, right? But how how do you know that that work is meaningfully improving the organizational risk? So I'll give you some statistics in terms of the improvements that we've made and how we've focused in on on that. Um, so it, again, if I rewind back to the when we started to re-architect some systems in response to COVID-19, we initiated a penetration test around that time because we knew that we would inadvertently have introduced some vulnerabilities uh, just because of the work that we had to do, whether that was a VPN, for example, um, or remote access. So that penetration test was, I suppose the best description is a car crash. Um, <laughs> <laughs> give you some <laughs> some insight in, into the that. So it it was it should have been a four day paid engagement that, mm-hmm. that we carried out. And um, within four hours on on the Friday, I'd received a phone call to say we may as well stop. It's over. As in penetration tester had gained full access, uh, not only full access to the network, but gone all the way to potentially being able to compromise the Kerberos ticket granting ticket account and therefore achieve full persistence within four hours. So from what was a four-day paid engagement where we thought there would be some challenges, the penetration tester was able to uh, compromise an account with VPN access and then access the network, utilizing lateral movement, completely navigate across what is a relatively flat network and then compromise some significant accounts and gain potentially full persistence within that network. Now, I mentioned that because that really helps galvanize the response in terms of how we deal with some of these issues. One of the big problems that we found was when we didn't have asset visibility across the state. So I was being told by teams within the IT department that, for example, we'd fully patched the BlueKeep vulnerability. And that was two, three, three years ago now. And, and yet the pen tester found devices on the network that still had that vulnerability unpatched. And I think the big problem with the systems we were using we couldn't get that single view of our patch compliance. So the system was very much fire and forget. 
So there's a number of vulnerabilities, a number of patches need applying, blast it out, wait for a report to come back to say that that patch has arrived at that device and then assume that you know everything else has been taken care of. It's probably one of the most significant parts of the, the uh, penetration test that we really identified that we needed to deal with, particularly because we now had five and a half thousand assets which had just all left the network and that was our primary route for patching those devices. So implemented Tanium and started to manage those devices, started to get increased visibility of those devices. And again, to give you some idea of the, the statistics, when we first implemented Tanium, we had 38,000 missing critical patches across our network. So that was just, just missing critical patches on, on those five and a half thousand devices. I won't tell you how many high, medium, and, and important patches were missing. Um, so we started to, to remediate those. Now, the, the underpinning infrastructure also wasn't there. So having a tool that can deliver that, great. But the team needs to be working on the same set of KPIs, the same metrics, the same dashboards. And that was one of the big problems prior to implementing Tanium. We had a set of people in operations looking at one dashboard in SCCM. I had an InfoSec team looking at a completely separate dashboard and the two never married up. And so it just drove arguments and discussions between the two groups about whose reporting tool was right about patch compliance. But also our patch uh, process and our policy was so onerous that we were taking four, five, six weeks to deploy critical patches. Uh, and around that time, we'd seen, I think, two zero-day vulnerabilities. So the first one, solar winds, and in very quick succession, Microsoft Exchange, zero-day vulnerabilities. And I had no confidence at the time that we could actually one, identify the systems, and then two, patch them in a timely manner. Through use of Tanium and some of the automation, and now we've got better visibility, that patch window is now reduced to 24 hours for deploying critical patches. And we used to have a team of three or four people working on the patch cycle. We've now got one. It's largely automated, and we gain confidence through our patching cycle by interrogation of those devices. So we've got much better visibility, much greater control, and we can see those patches landing on those machines, those machines checking in and reporting back. So it's given us a huge uh, amount of confidence in our ability to, to one, update our patching, reduce our patching cycle, and then provide board level visibility on, on where we're up to in terms of compliance. It's very interesting to hear you talk about uh, some of the timings for these things. That's definitely one of my favorite things as as a pen tester is to to just use agility because of course very often on engagements, uh, not always, it depends on complexity and scale, but very often it's uh, an IT team versus a single pen tester. I think for people who've maybe uh, worked on the defensive side, but never the offensive side before, they don't realize that quite often when we're doing these engagements, it's a, it's a single person. And um one of the things that I, I do like to see from the methodology point of view is simply, can we move faster than your team can? And uh, of course, it's the the balance of things is in is in the pentester's favor. And I mean, every time I say pentester, you could equally say cybercriminal. But um, one of the things that we've seen through uh, breaches of other organizations and things like that is uh, these these hacking teams using that to their advantage. So for example, in fact, an extreme example that would work quite well. If I'm looking to compromise an organization and I think I have an attack chain, I think there is a path that I would be able to exploit to gain uh, control of their systems. One of the things that I could do is perform a denial of service attack against a completely unrelated asset to get your IT team to stand up to all start panicking and all start dealing with this DOS attack so that nobody is paying attention <laughs> to the systems that, I, that I'm targeting and bringing in this uh, attack complexity plus the speed that that uh, the the attacker has in their favor yeah it doesn't surprise me that organizations can't move fast enough especially when you talk about you know your your standing position before all of this work of it taking four to six weeks to patch vulnerabilities could be the case that um back then a, a hacking team could you know map the environment that you've got work out what technology you have deployed and then just wait for the next cool vulnerability what's the next flavor of the month the the, the latest um exploitation use that to break the perimeter and then move faster than, than your team can and um, i think that's one of the things that that ability for uh, attackers to move quickly that is very often not spoken about when it comes to pen testing pen testing is often seen as like the the truth and that's it that's the only view so you know how far the pen tester gets in that that is how much risk an organization has but of course a pen test is a point in time assessment right and if you do a pen test this week and the next week a zero day is released well things are different right the the threat landscape has changed yeah absolutely or, or if the 
devices connected to the network at that point has changed or there's a new technology implementation or you know the, the network in our case is changing on a daily basis and again exacerbated because of COVID-19 we've had staff take devices home 18 months ago potentially not connected to the network that will now start to drip feed back in There'll be devices that have been purchased while we've not been on campus, again, that will be reconnected. We've implemented new technology for remote access, for example. So as you said, it's a point in time assessment and it's always changing. And so that opportunity for a, a pen tester or, as you said, attacker to then bide their time, wait for that opportunity and use that pace and agility to, to outmaneuver the, the defensive team is quite, quite a challenge to deal with. And, and Mark, do you have in, in your network and in your environment, do you have different classifications for systems and different risk profiles for those systems? Or do you just kind of treat it as a blank canvas? We need to get everybody up to, you know, a certain patch level or how do you prioritize? It's really interesting point, actually, Chris, and one of the fundamental changes that I've driven through our, our patch policy. So, uh, again, going back to, to kind of pre-pandemic, we were taking six weeks to patch critical vulnerabilities. And that's because we treated every system with the relative same priority. And it was just a case of the team going, well, we've been in SCCM, we've identified the patches that need deploying, we've blasted them out to all systems, fire and forget, and we'll we'll wait and see what, what comes back. And with any kind of small team limited resources, actually it's better for us to focus those resources on those higher value systems. So what I've introduced is a tiering system not just within the patch policy, but actually across the IT department. So we have tier zero systems, our kind of critical run the business, key corporate systems that we need to be available, you know, 24 seven, all day, every day. And then there's, there's only a small handful of those systems, HR systems, for example, finance systems. And then we move down in layers to lower priority systems. And a university operates on a, on a cycle. And um, so it's, our, our business is seasonal. And so there are some systems which are more important at certain times of year and less important other times of year. So we've used that information to tier those systems and focus our efforts in on deploying critical patches, for example, or remediating critical vulnerabilities. So those tier zero systems, so that's absolute focus as soon as we identify patches being released or vulnerabilities on those systems. And then our effort is proportionate to the tiering of that system. And that's one of the reasons we've gone from six weeks to, to patch a, a critical vulnerability down to 24 hours today because we've now got that absolute focus on what's important for the university to manage that level of risk and what's acceptable in terms of level of risk if we don't get to patch a critical vulnerability on a tier five system that could be that our system's only used every september for example and we're in january so that's not the end of the world so that's how we're, we're now trying to focus those efforts to ensure that we're dealing with it on a risk-based approach yeah, no, it's really interesting. And, you know, Holly, I've got a question for you here. I mean, you, you mentioned that Outlook vulnerability that came out not too long ago, and that came out and within a couple of days, there was proof of concept codes um, hosted on Git. You know, attackers could download it and, and weaponize it. And, you know, Holly, we are pen testing background and you, you talk about the speed to move through systems and, mm -hmm. and react. I mean, you know, how quickly can an organization that you work for take something like that and weaponize that and can you move quicker than mark's 24-hour patching cycle the short and blunt answer is yes in some instances we can move faster than 24 hours and and i'll give some examples for that in a second but for those who are listening in to to, to save myself starting with the scaremongering um, when you look at vendor patches, very often they include this information. So, for example, Microsoft not only includes a grading of the importance of a patch, so critical, important, optional is the three gradings that they use, but for their critical patches, they also include why that is. So for each vulnerability that a patch uh, remediates, you'll see them use terminology such as exploited in the wild, very likely to be exploited, unlikely to be exploited. And um, the, the thing is, no patches the same as any other and no vulnerability is the same as any other so it just depends but yeah to give you a good example that that people can look back on of where threat actors and pen testers can move faster than defensive teams would be back in 2014 with heartbleed so heartbleed was announced to the public you know there's this uh 
it's one of the earliest kind of named vulnerabilities with a logo, with a website. And between that being announced as a vulnerability and there being publicly available exploit code was only about eight hours. And many of the pen testing teams, and no doubt many of the, the crime groups were much faster than that as well. So is 24 hours fast enough? It depends. Can we beat the 24 hours? Yes, in some instances. But what is the, the actionable takeaway for organizations? is start paying attention to those advisories. Start looking at the information that organizations like Microsoft are giving you. And if it says currently being exploited in the wild, that is a higher level of criticality than unlikely to be exploited. No, really interesting. Just that whole saga about um, that particular Outlook vulnerability. And I think you know, Microsoft has taken down, took down the code on, on Git and the, the whole security research community is up in arms because they need these kind of proof of concepts and then it's just a, a bit of a change in policy. But, you know, I can understand that from, you know, businesses perspective and potentially even Microsoft, they don't want, you know, to make the hackers life easier because they want to get that patch out there. So organizations can patch as quick as, and then maybe disclose it at a later time and, and bring that out. But, you know, certainly, you know, two schools of thought there. Yeah, reasonable adults will disagree, and it, and it depends in context what proof of concept means as well, because um, if the proof of concept is unlikely to be able to be turned into an exploit, that would lean more in favor of the defensive teams. If you could use this to determine if your systems are vulnerable, then that can be used to cross a network to find out where your vulnerable systems are to prioritize patching. Yeah. But if this is basically an exploit just without the shell code and it could be very easily turned into or either a working exploit or even worse something that's wormable so it can be um, exploited on mass automated um then that leans more in favor of the uh, adversaries and more in favor of the, the crime groups and there isn't consensus in the industry as to you know what we should be doing with this some people um, historically took a full disclosure approach, which in my experience comes from previously with organizations not addressing security vulnerabilities and things like that. Full disclosure is just, you know, dropping an exploit on, on a mailing list and saying, well, it's in the public eye now, you know, deal with it. And that can force organizations to take action. But many organizations, as we've been talking about throughout this conversation, are already taking those actions and are having a pragmatic approach to security and are doing as much as they can with the resources that they've got. So in those instances, for those organizations, dropping an exploit is not going to help them. So, yeah, reasonable adults will, will disagree. And, um, you know, sometimes people still go full disclosure. Yeah, no, it's certainly interesting. I think if you ask... Um, probably every security researcher out there, maybe not every pen tester, but people who do um, exploit development, I think everybody's got uh, a series of experiences with organizations where some of them are very forthcoming. They want to talk about the vulnerability. They want to talk about how you found it and they want to address it as quickly as possible. Um, I've got some experiences working with companies with vulnerabilities where they just haven't understood them. And the biggest pain has not been getting them to, to realize that it's serious and address it, but it's just getting them to understand it. You know, maybe their focus has been uh, product or software development and they just don't have a security team. So when you start talking about remote code execution, they just don't have anyone that speaks that language. And then there are still, you know, companies out there that, that want to hide these things. And there are still in, in 2021, current year argument, organizations that will threaten legal action against security researchers. There has been a couple of very recent, very big examples of that. I'm not going to name names because uh, litigious organizations, but I'm sure people can use social media to find those examples. Yeah, it's difficult to know what um, what side of the line to, to walk on and where you stand. Um, and it's not only in one country, but, you know, different ju jurisdictions and, and places like that get a different view on it. And Mark, you mentioned you're talking a bit about having to convey the, the risk of your IT environment to the board. And um, you mentioned you had to get up and top a priority of, of different risks to the organization. You know, now that you've kind of gotten up to that level, you know, how do you measure yourself within that level? So, you know, do you have a certain number that you look at or is it, you know, do you look at certain amount of days until you patch or vulnerabilities reduced or attackers have somehow managed to get into your IT estate? How do you manage that? I guess it's a combination of things, Chris. So I suppose the first point is when, when I raised the risk up the risk register, it was because the level of risk we were exposed to, the university was exposed to, didn't match our risk appetite. Uh, and I suppose that's the key point. We have a risk appetite. 
and we're not currently matching our, our defences in line with that risk appetite. So there's work to do to close that gap. And the way I monitor and report on that is a number of things. There's the basic dashboard, so looking at time to patch, for example, number of vulnerabilities, et cetera, et cetera. But then there's also some of the issues that we've identified and remediation of those helps us move towards closing that risk appetite. So there's a number of projects which are on a roadmap and completion of those projects moves us a step closer to that risk appetite. And that's really where my, my reporting to board level focuses on. I, you know, do I think we've done enough to get us to within that risk appetite? And if we've not, what more do we need to do? And interestingly, when I first raised this at, at board level, the conversation was, well, how quickly can we do that? How quickly can we go from the level of risk we have today to get it to within our, our risk appetite? And again, that's a question of, well, how much time and money do you want to invest in that? I can close those gaps much quicker with lots more money and lots more people and resources but then, you know, there's still a fundamental basics of work that needs to be done. I need to have the right resources within the team. I need to have the right tooling, the right visibility, et cetera. And what I've done is agreed at board level a sensible and reasonable plan that shows that we're making progress towards our risk appetite and we've got additional investment. And I can choose to go and ask for more investment if required. But I think we've got a sensible plan today that shows a roadmap of activities and as each one of those is, is ticked off and the metrics that we report through the scorecard brings us into line with that risk appetite. And I, honestly, I don't think, certainly not in the foreseeable future, I can't see me downgrading that risk from that risk register. Currently actually sits in second position, the risk of cyber attack on the university. The one risk that sits above it is a, is a huge risk that um, I won't go into detail of, but is outside of our control. Um, but has massive implications for the university if that risk materialises. Actually, the, the risk of cyber attack currently sits above things like um, GDPR, for example, um, Brexit, you know, so some of the more recent high profile risks that you would expect any organisation to have way up on their risk register. Um, the, the risk of cyber attack is currently in number two position. So it's probably about as high as I can raise it. And I see it probably staying there for the foreseeable future. Yeah. What's in terms of like your risk? I mean, you know, this year is, is very much a year of the ransomware. Um, and, you know, last year was too. You know, do you um, expect to see more type of ransomware attack? Uh, more. <laughs> I, I think, honestly, Chris, it, you look at, again, I've talked quite openly about how how much improvement the university defence is needed and how much work we've done so far. And there is still lots of more work to do. And I gave some context way back at the start when we talked about joiners, movers, leavers, number of assets. I think combine all those things, and I think university organisations are seen as a relative soft target. Um, you know, we have to have open access. Um, we've got lots of accounts that are very difficult to manage. And I think attackers that are financially motivated see university networks as, as somewhat of a, a soft touch, um, certainly more so than, than perhaps more commercial organisations. And as there's more and more uh, higher education institutions that are falling victim to these ransomware attacks, I think that just adds more grist to the mill. I think then other groups are seeing that as an opportunity to, to broaden their horizons and perhaps go and, and pursue higher education as a target. So I think we'll see many more. I, I don't think it will, will back off anytime soon. Uh, yeah, a bit of a loaded question. It's just, you know, every every week you open up the newspaper, well, the digital newspaper, and it's really big ransomware. Well, two big ones in the last week. You know, you get the pipeline in the US, you get the, the health service over in Ireland being attacked. And it's interesting, you know, you, you see two different responses as well. You know, the pipeline, I think I read something that they're they're looking to, to pay the ransomware because it's quicker to recover by just getting the keys. Whereas, you know, in Ireland, they're saying, right, we're not paying. And if you look at the kind of the economy of it all as well, it's insurance companies are actually ones telling these organizations to go out there and pay the ransom because the insurance costs will spiral out of control from maybe lost services on the back of it, different lawsuits. Um, whereas, you know, I'm starting to see a bit of change in the industry and I think it was the, the ex-GCHQ director said in the Times, you know, he's trying to push that they make ransomware payment illegal because when they make it legal, it's it's difficult to get law enforcement involved to actually tr track where the money's gone to because it's, it's a legitimate transaction to an extent. 
You know, there's another good article, I think uh, AXA Insurance in France has seen a lot more ransomware attacks than the UK has, and AXA is starting to take the, the position where they're not going to pay out attackers on there. And uh, so I think you're starting to see a bit of a shift. I think it's, you know, it's a, it's a very lucrative business at the moment because effectively people are paying uh, ransoms out. But hopefully over time that, you know, we see that we're not, we're not going to be providing payment to these criminal organizations. Well, given that uh, access subsidiaries have been hit by ransomware themselves, I think that might have a, a change of their view of uh, ransomware over time. But a question to, to either of you, because it is an unfair question. Given that ransomware has been around since 1989, why haven't we solved the problem yet? I, I guess the potential profits and, and the, the finances involved. So Chris mentioned then the pipeline attack. And um, you, if you believe what you read on social media, I think that the ransom of five million pounds has been paid. And actually a slight twist on that, that the decryption tool was so poor that they can't use it to actually decrypt the, the files. So they're actually just having to continue to effectively pay five million pounds for not a great deal. Um, and as long as organizations pay ransomware and it is rewarding those attackers, then there will be people continuing to be financially motivated to invest time and effort into it. And, you know, it, it's, a, it's a global problem and I don't see an easy solution to it. But while organizations are willing to pay those kind of sums of money to, to try and recover their business quickly, then there will always be someone motivated to try and exploit it. Yeah. There's, there's money in it. People pay. I mean, simple enough. If people stop paying the ransomware crews and, you know, they stop those type of attacks, knock on wood. <laughs> I'll give you a, a different perspective on it. In, in my view, there is no such thing as a ransomware attack because the ransomware is simply the end of the attack chain, which is the monetization mechanism. You know, every ransomware attack could have a different method of breaching the perimeter, a different method of propagation, a different method of escalation. But the last step being to deploy ransomware instead of, for example, to steal intellectual property or perform a disruption attack. Because that's ransomware, we suddenly group the whole thing as, oh, it's a ransomware attack. And in actuality, you know, the, the ransomware is, is a potentially tiny aspect of it. Yeah, and you, you talked about a, a diversionary tactic as well. Mm. You know, I've, I've seen, you know, scorched earth approaches where they go in, grab the data that they need, and then they cover up the tracks. It's right, we deploy ransomware that's used by, you know, known criminal gangs to divert the investigation where it could be another type of threat actor there, or worse off, they just um, completely do a system wipe of the endpoints. So. Yeah, it can be diversionary tactics, but you know, getting back to solving the the main problem is it's it really comes back to asset visibility and being able to manage your endpoints, making sure that they're patched, making sure that you know even if the attackers do get in, that you're able to get a notification quickly and you've instrumented your environment to to be able to to react and to be able to remediate quickly. So. Um, a lot of attackers today, um, these ransomware crews, they're they're compromising the, the environment, but they're, they've shifted to human-operated type ransomware where they get into the environment and then they find out where the crown jewels are. And you know, going back to you know what Mark was saying in the different risk profiles in the organization, I mean, Mark's understands you know where the sensitive parts of the environment is and it's got different patching policies for that. But, you know, essentially the attackers are moving in the environment, finding out where the data is, exfiltrating that, going through, deleting all the backups that are in the environment. And then they're, they're setting a scheduled task there to deploy ransomware on a, a Friday evening at five o'clock. And, you know, it, it happens quite too often and, uh, you know, the organization's in, in bad state. But, you know, ultimately it's it's, it's understanding what your risk is, making sure that you're, you're doing the basics right, making sure you understand where your assets are, and then making sure they're not vulnerable and making sure they're patched. Yeah, and I think to, to your point as well, Holly, about ransomware really being the end of that chain, I think just in the last couple of weeks, we've seen a slight change in tactics from certain groups where the organisation will remain nameless, but for a large organisation that manufactures industrial plant equipment uh, was contacted because one of their competitors have been compromised and, and their data stolen first before then being encrypted and that that group then reached out to the competitors to offer up that information for sale to to a direct competitor so again just a slight change on that final part of that attack chain but again monetizing the that that way through the organization 
and whether it's encryption of files or just selling that information to a, to a competitor. And I'm sure there would be plenty out there that would, again, monetize that and, and pay the pay the money to um, to get that information on customers, intellectual property or whatever else it might be. Yeah, both great points that you raised there. Um, Chris, what you're saying about um, ransomware crews moving to a, a manual approach is is a huge change in, in the way that they've operated. And I think it's something that a lot of companies haven't necessarily uh, noticed is that ransomware operators are acting more and more like pen testing teams. You know, I, I threw out there, it's like, hey, ransomware has been around since 1989. Yeah, but the first ransomware was very, very different to what we're seeing from groups, you know, 25 years later, like uh, SamSam, for example, or 30 years later, like the um, the recent attacks we've seen against the pipeline that you mentioned. Um, so, yeah, I think things have changed. And, and of course, Mark, what you're adding there about they can do ransomware, but they can also do other things. So you mentioned stealing data to sell to competitors, but we've also seen examples of um, these crews stealing data to then hold over the organization as a potential PII breach. So the, the using the leverage of things like GDPR against the organization, you know, pay the ransom and we'll uh, give you your data back or we'll release it. And then not only have you got a ransomware network, but you've got a uh, personal data breach to worry about. Yeah, and I think that we've we've definitely seen that in the higher education space as well with, with some of the universities that have been hit in the last 12 months. That, that information has been shared quite quite widely on dark web leak sites. And uh, and again, that's something that I've used within the university to just highlight one how easy it is, but also the potential impact on an organization. It's not just the, the reputational loss and, and damage that's caused by an attack, but also the potential ongoing impact of, of PII data being being lost. Yeah. And just to, to move off off of ransomware, the R word, um, you know, Mark, you've been through, you know, quite a journey with the University of Salford in the last couple of years and talked about how you've, you know, gone in there and you, you can get things like a patch report and there's lots of vulnerabilities and, you know, you, you talk about kind of the, the projects and, and, you know, reducing your risk for the organization. You know, are there any particular frameworks that you use? Is it like, you know, do you use NEST or, you know, SANS top 20 critical controls or 10 best practices from NCSE? I think because we're coming from a relatively low maturity, um, we, we could use any one of those frameworks and it would just help us structure some of the improvements that we're trying to make. The reality is we're, we are using SANS top 20. Um, but again, it, you know, like I said, it could equally well be any of the others. And back to the conversation earlier you know we've got some of the what i call the fundamentals or the basics that we need to improve on and that could be patching could be password complexity for example expiry of accounts there's there's loads in there and as we discovered through the conversation they might be basics in their individual right add them all together and actually it's quite a, a complex piece so having that framework to just focus our attention and effort really helps us to, to make sure we're doing the right things in the right time and coordinating all of those activities together. So the, the framework's definitely helping. But like I said, because of the relative low maturity, you know, we, we could have picked anything and, and it would have been a massive help to us. Yeah. And, and in terms of just kind of going through, you know, some of those controls and stuff, how do you get your teams together to, to be able to tackle these different IT projects? Do you have, do you set up like, you know, sprints that, you know, we're going to work on this for a couple of weeks. Here's the different goals. And, you know, do you do like a, an agile approach where you get daily standups with with the team and you go tackle these things? How do you work? Yeah, we, we definitely using that kind of agile approach. It, it's part of our project methodology anyway in the university, whether we're delivering some software development or, or whatever, we, we're using that agile approach. Um, I quite like that, the cadence that it gives and that, that um, rhythm. And there's definitely a rhythm to be had in, in terms of driving these improvements. And I suppose the reality is that what we're trying to do is pick out some key themes and align to those sprints. So quite helpfully when we had the, the pen test um, 18 months ago, there were some big topic items in there that we really needed to pick through and we focused some of our sprints against those big topics and so every time we're we're driving some remediation some improvement it's really theme based because there's some benefit to consistency of topic rather than having to task switch or, or think about very different uh, logical things it's it's much better much more beneficial for my teams to be focused in on a particular topic whether that's improving passwords for example or network or you know whatever it might be so definitely sprint based and, and having some theme to that to ensure consistency. 
Yeah. And did you, you know, you must have had some really good wins along the way. Was it Zoom beers involved or, or cakes being shipped to people? How did you celebrate? Um, but honestly, we've, we've not done a massive celebration yet. I, I think it's one of those things where if you ever sit back and go, oh, we've, we've done, that that's, that's a good job well done and it, you let your guard down. I think that's when you know, the inevitable happens. So we've, you know, we've obviously congratulated people and, and recognised the great work and the huge amount of effort that's gone in. But I'm, maybe this is just, just me and, and the way I am, but I always move on to the next thing and I'm constantly pushing that bar up. What's the next thing that we need to achieve? What's the next level? Sometimes that may lead to me perhaps not, recognizing and i'm sure my teams would say perhaps don't recognize often enough all of the hard work that goes in but given the threat landscape that we face at the moment and the challenges then we can't spend too long just focusing on patting ourselves on the back and congratulating ourselves for some great work and absolutely recognize there has been but we're already moving on to that next thing and again you know holly talked about agility of, of attackers you know we, we can't spend two hours on on zoom having a few beers on a on a friday night because i've still got that constant worry that we've not dealt with that next thing or that next thing so it's it's a bit of a challenge we have recognized the work that's gone in because it's been a huge amount over the last 18 months but i'm already thinking about what's the next set of activities yeah you talk about you know measuring yourself internally in, in terms of your risk how do you measure yourself within the the university it industry you know do you talk to your colleagues and peers to see where they are. You know, I also heard possible, you know, some sort of risk scoring kind of benchmarking that might be coming out across public sector at some point, or maybe it wasn't across all of it, but, you know, it was a way just to kind of measure each other. But do you see any of that going on in your? Yeah, there's, I mean, there's loads of tooling that gives us insight into our peers. So take Tenable and, and Nessus, there's some, uh, scoring in there that allows us to compare to, to some other similar industries. There's the same in, in Microsoft world as well. So that we can look at our baseline and compare our score. But actually, I'm fairly pragmatic in that I, I don't think there's a, a huge number of universities that do information security really well. Um, and again, I think that's why universities have been seen as perhaps a soft target. Uh, moreover, I, I'd never really want to just look around at, at my direct peers and compare myself to them and say, well, is that, am I good compared to them? Uh, I'd always just look at the wider sector, you know, outside of the sector, sorry, and, and see what's going on there and use that as a barometer rather than compare to just very insular and, and looking at HE, I think is not a good comparator. It's interesting to to hear you say that. Um, I think that the two things that, that stood out for me there were talking about maybe the feeling of not wanting to celebrate too much and the feeling of not wanting to um, compare yourself too much. I think one of the dangers of you know not not celebrating is that the worry of, of team burnout. And if, if they're feeling like their efforts aren't being appreciated, then that can lead people to be frustrated. But I can completely acknowledge the counterpoint of how bad it would be optically if you have a massive party because we've, we've solved cybersecurity on Friday and then you come in on Monday and you've been hit by ransomware. So there was, of course, a, a balance to be got there. And I think um, it's interesting to hear you say not comparing yourself too much to your peer group because, of course, if... If your sector is poorly performing in comparison to other sectors, or if your peer group are, are, are poorly uh, performing, you know, you could say, well, we're, we're ahead of, of these guys, but that doesn't mean that you've got a strong stance, right? If, if the, the whole group are, are behind. Yeah, and I think in some circles, people say, well, you, you just, uh, the, the targets should not be the worst, because, it, you know, if you're the easiest target to exploit, then then you're the one likely to be hit. And as long as we're not at the bottom of the pile, then we we should or might escape being targeted. I just think that's a fairly negative view to take. And actually what we should be doing is looking at our risk appetite and comparing ourselves to other organisations that have a similar risk appetite to ours and looking at what good looks like for them. And that could be in financial services. It, it could be automotive. It could be anywhere. But it should be based on risk appetite rather than sector or anything else. And I think that's how we should score ourselves and maybe when, if we get to that level and I've got a, a higher degree of confidence in our ability to deal with potential attacks and, and manage our estate and so on, then then maybe we'll crack out the beers and have more of a celebration. Um, uh, you know, and I don't want to sound too negative. Uh, we, we've recognised the work that the teams have done because it's been a huge effort over the last 18 months, particularly when you consider IT departments have had to deal with response to COVID-19 in terms of run the business and enable the business as well as the security challenges is that 
security challenges that brings. So there has been recognition of that, but I think perhaps too soon for us to to celebrate the fact that we've we've got to our risk appetite because we're still a way off yet. I think it's it's good as well because you hear a lot of organizations saying things, you know, like we need to be market leading or this product needs to be market leading. And then on the flip side, they say, as long as our cybersecurity is not literally the worst, we're fine. It's just such a different view. Absolutely. And again, I think that's where risk appetite really helps to, to frame the, the whole piece. So, you know, when I first started talking to, to the board about this, um, the comparator I gave was on risk appetite, you know, at one end of the spectrum, we could be investing tens, if not hundreds of millions of pounds, and that might be financial services sector, for example. But we know that one, we can't afford that, and our level of risk is is not quite as high as that. At, at the complete opposite end of the spectrum, you could look at, say, a startup organization that might be willing to take on a higher degree of risk. And again, we're not at that end, so we're probably somewhere left of center. Um, and that's how I try and pitch our progress and our improvement, but also help them understand the level of investment required. You mentioned earlier on the, the, the pen test and how that changed things. Are there, are there plans to run another pen test to see how you've done in the meantime, how you've fixed your defences and, and patched your state? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the fundamentals out of that initial pen test, it, it was so bad and, and I can't overemphasise just how bad it was. Um, we very quickly moved to a, an agreed approach with the board where we would carry out uh, effectively continuous pen testing. What that meant for us was a cycle of pen testing every three months with remediation in between. And that cadence, that, that rhythm really helped drive some of the improvement, raised the visibility again. And so the board had assurance that on a regular basis, they would receive feedback on how our defences had improved, for example. Um, we've added another, you know, loads of other facets to that improvement plan. But the fundamental to it is we, we need to continue on a regular basis to have someone external to the university come in and try and target certain systems. And what we do is work with the pen testers to say, here's a, a, an area where we want you to go and target. You think this is a potential soft target or we think there's some vulnerabilities here. Go and work on that. I want to give you an example. One of the things I'm concerned about is, is backup solution. So we know that once the, the perimeter is compromised, then if it was a ransomware attacker, for example, then they're looking for those high value systems, they're looking to take out our ability to recover from any potential attack. So we know that backup solutions would be high on their list of priorities. And uh, so I'm, I'm particularly concerned about that. And so I'd be targeting um, our regular pen test on, on the backup solution, looking at how vulnerable that is once, um, once an attacker has gained entry into the network, how quickly can they scope that out, understand it, and then compromise it and take it offline without, you know, potentially without us realizing. So we, we're constantly working with, with pen testers to identify the next opportunity for them to come in and test our defenses and then improve our either technology, process, or, or whatever it might be to, to deal with that. No, that's good. It's so important that you do regular pen tests just to, to see where you're at. There's lots of organizations that will do it just as a one-off. And, uh, you know, with the, the change in the threat landscape and your, your business where you get staff coming and going often, it's important to regularly test those defenses. And then also how you respond and react to them as well. We talked about, you know, slipping off for a few beers and stuff. You know, whoever's the, the pen tester might want to see, find out University of Salford's Twitter accounts and see if uh, any images pop up, target them then. I shouldn't be saying these things. <laughs> I think it's it's funny to say them, but, you know, everybody, every organization should be aware of these risks, shouldn't everybody, every organization should, should be aware of like things like open source intelligence gathering, the fact that attackers are going to target the organization at inopportune moments. There have been so many examples of that. You mentioned earlier, of course, you know, threat groups targeting you at 5.30 on a Friday, but we've seen more extreme examples. So um, Travelex getting hit on New Year's Eve, which is just like, when are the fewest staff going to be available and when are most of the staff going to be hung over? You know, these threat groups can can target these periods for organizations. For every organization, it, it might be different. What is their downtime? You know, you, you mentioned universities being seasonal. This kind of information's out there, right? Yeah, that seasonality of, of HE in particular, but many organizations leads to periods of heightened alertness. So, you know, certainly for universities, obviously we expect 5,000 students to turn up at the end of September. Our recruitment cycle is during the summer and, and that uh, contributes to the majority of the revenue that comes into a university. So th those periods are particularly vulnerable because we know if we were compromised during those periods, 
then we have to, there's even more pressure to recover and respond quickly. And we know that attackers are aware of that. Like you said, it's publicly available information. Certainly the seasonality of higher education is no is no secret, but there are many other businesses which are dependent on revenue at certain parts of the year. And if they were attacked or compromised during that period, then that has a, a higher degree of impact on that organisation than perhaps a, a period uh, later on in the year where, where business may be not as critical. So I think we've we've just hit the hour now. What closing remarks would you would you both leave the audience with? If there was one thing that they could take away from this episode, what is it that you would want them to remember? For me, well, maybe there's two things. One has got to be something around doing the basics and doing them well. And I know we must stop calling it the basics because join them together and they are complex. But getting elements of the basics right and then joining them up to ensure that they're working in harmony, I think is is one of the the key things and then the second one for me I suppose selfishly as a as a CIO is use risk to, to drive activity and focus and don't be too scared of highlighting a particular risk and and putting it out there and getting that focus that it's an opportunity as well as a challenge and I think that's for me that would be the the two takeaways that I'd, I'd want people to to get from this yeah, and for me, it's starting with the, the basics and the fundamentals right away. It's understanding what you've got connected to your network, what it's doing, what data's on it, and then also, you know, is it patched, is it vulnerable? And then overlaying what, you know, Mark mentioned there is the, the risk factors of that data that sits on those endpoints and making sure that it's secure. Fantastic. Chris, Mark, thank you both for being on the show. Thank you very much. Thanks, Holly. Thank you.